This week I've got the big dog back in, Professor Chris McClellan in. We're going to talk myths. we got a lot of good feedback and a lot of haters from the last one. What do you think, mate? I say bring the hate and uh, let's just drop knowledge bombs. Exactly. Get in, guys. Enjoy. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast, bringing you everything you need, want and should know about health, fitness, nutrition and training. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent or manage any injury, disease or other health-related condition. Today's podcast is brought to you by our new Clean Bars. We spent countless hours sourcing only the best high-quality nourishing ingredients from trusted suppliers and getting the balance between nutritional value, taste and texture just right. Made with all natural ingredients you can feel good about, like plant proteins, fruits, seeds and nuts. Simply bursting with quality protein, antioxidants, fibre and healthy fats, plus a 100% vegan friendly. And the taste? Divine. Welcome to Body Science HQ, the world of fit, happy and healthy. With me today is Dr. or Professor Chris McClellan. Now, mate, one of the big questions that's coming through the email is, you know, what is a professor? That's a good question uh, because in uh, social media world, lots of people like to call themselves this, that and the other thing. And, you know, my my little pet peeve is people who embellish their qualifications. Well, what is a professor? I suppose an academic title. I'll I'll tell you how I became a professor. So I did 12 years of full-time study at university Mm -hmm. in undergraduate and postgraduate studies. I did a a four-year bachelor's degree. I did a four-year master's of physiotherapy and then I did a four-year PhD in exercise, endocrinology, immunology, biochemistry and physiology. That gives you a PhD and that's the starting point in academia. So a lot of people go PhD, job done, fantastic, call yourself a doctor when you've got that. There's only two people that can call themselves doctor. You're either a medical doctor, a GP who's got a uh, medical degree or you've got a doctorate uh, as in a PhD. As I said, in my world, that's the starting point. What was your doctorate in? My doctorate was in endocrinology, hormones in response to exercise specifically. So that was what I spent a lot of time looking at in professional athletes. What happens then is you can then embark on an academic career. Without Mm -hmm. a PhD, your career options are really limited. So academia is a hierarchical structure with a professor is the highest title you can have Mm -hmm. and it works backwards from there. So you start as a lecturer usually with a PhD. And so there's usually a number of ranks within that that take about four years to get through. It's like there's a level A and a level B. So you'll spend four years as a lecturer. Then you can be a senior lecturer, minimum four years at that level, then you become associate professor, minimum four years at that level, and then you can become a professor. So for me, 12 years of full-time study, 12 years of progression through academia, which is all meritorious. So it's not just you get it because you've been around for 20 years, you get it because you meet the criteria and it's highly competitive. And then criteria is around teaching, it's around research, it's around contribution to the literature. So you publish papers, you speak at conferences around the world, you look for research funding in various areas. And you have to substantiate that I that you've met the criteria to progress through the ranks. So how many sports science professors are there in Australia? Most universities only have one. Okay, wow. Yeah, one or two. So th- there are a number of them. And I became a full professor a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you a white coat and some glasses with that? I have Is a that white coat that yeah. I don't wear very often. Yeah. But along the way, I, not, you know, not I've a published... Good joke. You've heard that before? I've heard it a couple yeah, of times. Move on. Yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> it's good. But along the way, I've published over 100 peer-reviewed wow. um, works across everything from peer-reviewed papers, you know, conference proceedings, all that sort of thing. So, And you don't get to... Prof- 
professor until you get there. So for me, 12 years full-time study, another 17 years in academia. So you do the math and there's a there's a real history there around that. I'm a little bit unique or I like to think I'm a little bit different in that concurrently over after doing my initial studies, I went and worked in Japan for seven years in mm-hmm. professional rugby. Okay. And then I was head of performance at the Titans in the NRL for, I was there for seven years, six, six or seven years, head of sports science in, at the Brisbane Lions in the AFL, Gold Coast Suns, head of sports science there. And then the last, since about the last three years, I mainly now consult globally and I sit on, on reference committees and things like that. So I'm on eight editorial boards of scientific journals. Okay. So I see a lot of research. Some of it really good quality, some of it less. But in terms of, you don't become a professor overnight. You know, when people call themselves, you know, the muscle prof. Yes. And and they don't have a degree. I'm the guy that gets a little bit perturbed by that because it took me 30, well, it took me, you know, 20 odd years, 26 years to get there, you know. And you don't, you don't get 26 years experience when you're 35 years old. I'm 49. I've been around a while. And so that's how, how it works. And so I guess what, what enables me to be in a position to make some commentary around the things that we talk about in these podcasts is that background that is in academia yes that is bona fide qualifications and the blend of industry experience so we're talking evidence-based myth busting oh yeah so well this is uh, evidence-based is a really popular term at the term at the moment i see a lot of people running workshops around the place that's saying they're evidence-based the thing to remember people is that there's lots of different levels of evidence right from its very lowest level which is just an opinion, mm-hmm. right? Or a case study or something like that, or what we call an N of one. So N is, it means a, a number. Yep. Like, like you're talking about my own experience. So someone's uh, evidence around comp prep might be that they did a bodybuilding comp themselves and this is what worked for them. And so I'm going to use that evidence to, to prep 500 people. That's got absolutely no value whatsoever. The highest level of evidence is what we call a systematic review. And that is a really comprehensive systematic overview of all of the research that's been done on a particular topic. It could be like if it's caffeine, it might be a review of 11,000 papers. It's a re- it's a big, big job. So I always proceed with caution when people say that they're providing the evidence. Mm-hmm. I go, well, show me the evidence. Yep. You know, what is the evidence? And that's why we provide that in these, in these podcasts because it's pretty easy to just fob off an opinion. We'll give an opinion because we'd like to give an opinion, but we'll also provide you with some st- substantiated validation of that information. So that you can leave this knowing, well, Macca didn't just pluck this out of thin air. Yep. And that, that's kind of what we're trying to do. And and I know I'm talking a lot, but the caveat is that we provide information, right? We don't, we're not trying to diagnose anyone. We've got a few, today's sort of myths and probably misconceptions is a probably There are some interesting term. ones in here. I was just looking at the list. Well, there's a couple there that, you know, we want to go after. I see things that are really trendy and I shake my head because there's very little evidence to support them often. And in the industry, we're in an industry where everyone's trying to find something new and different. And just because it's different doesn't mean it's necessarily better or any more valid than what we've been doing for 40 years. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've got 22 here that people have asked for, all the teams come up oh, with. We'll get so yeah. let's start with the first one. Yeah. Okay. Bare feet training is better than with shoes for glute development. So, barefoot training has become a really popular thing, particularly barefoot deadlifting in mm. gyms. Now, a lot of people's ears are going to prick here because I see it in every gym yep. everywhere. I actually have often pondered why is that a thing? Because I live in a world where I go, okay, I'm talking about muscle activation patterns, and mm. we, we measure that via what's called EMG, electromyography. That's where you place little electrodes on the muscle bellies of the muscles that are active during a movement. So in this case, with a with a deadlift, it would be glute max, glute med, the quad complex, so 
retfem, vastus lateralis, medialis, all that sort of thing, and then into the hamstring complex, bicep femoris, mem- uh, semimembranosis, semitendinosis. We get into adductor longus brevis, the whole works, gracilis sartorius, the whole works, right? And even into gastroc, soleus, tibant, the whole lot. So, Can I just take a breath? Yeah, yeah. So that, you know, if you don't know what those muscles are, then you really don't belong in the conversation. <laughs> you know I mean? Not you, but I mean, I'm talking sort of no, You didn't breathe then. I thought you were going to pass out. Oh. So, yeah. Well, then we go into and quadratus lumborum, and we go through, into yeah. longissimus thoracis, iliocostalis lumborum, and we get stuck into the paraspinals. So people go erect to spine, I'm like, well, yeah. So what are they? Anyway, that's a different conversation. Bare feet, yes or no? So bare feet, the answer is an inconvenient reality. It comes from, I think, the lifting strategy based on the assumption that shoes, you know, like your normal running shoe has a soft sole that will absorb some of the impact and they have a little bit of a heel mm-hmm. so that it'll rock you into an anterior position right yep. you don't want to be squat shoes if anyone lifts in olympic weightlifting shoes you would have seen those yeah. so they've got a heel right we want to squat in those shoes but we don't want to deadlift in those in those shoes generally we we know that the preferred position for deadlifting is with your feet flat so your chuck taylors or you know any of those sort of you know your old dunlop volleys are probably a really good shoe for it and i figure that's why people have taken their shoes off because they just want to have fat feet. Flat feet. Fat feet. And and you know the 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 myth is that it will increase glute activation. It doesn't. Myth. Right? Myth. Quad activation, myth. Hamstring activation, myth. There's only one muscle, and, and I'm going to provide you with the research because there's some that's not a lot, but there's been a bit done on it. Tibialis anterior during the eccentric phase of the movement is the only muscle that has an increased amount of EMG activity during that. And that's okay. because you go into an eccentrically loaded dorsiflexion position as you lower the bar to the floor. The rest of it, you're wasting your time. And people with their socks on, you're actually reducing, you're actually creating a bigger slip interface on the floor in your socks. So put your shoes back on. And you'll be sweet. But I'm not talking about wearing, you know, maybe a, and I don't want to bag any particular brand, but you don't want a shoe with a big heel. Absolutely. So if you're wearing a something like a, and I won't name any, but there are some shoes that have big heels on them that are used for running and shock absorption. Yep. You don't want to be lifting in those. No. But the whole scenario around I'm going to get more quad recruitment, glute recruitment, and hamstring recruitment based on flat feet is is a misnomer. And there's a paper by Hammer et al. that came out in 2018 that absolutely confirmed that. And then there's another, there's actually a thesis that I read by a girl, Sarah Brown, from East Tennessee State University. She did a PhD on it. I think it was a PhD. It might have been a master's. And that's what she found. She goes, one muscle. Thank you. Bye-bye. So bodyscience.com.au forward slash podcast to download those papers. Yeah, yeah. The thing you got to think about too right and this is sort of goes with that is that the foot right people have different feet configurations obviously some people have a high arch some people have a low arch we actually have three arches in our foot there's the medial longitudinal arch right which is the one we most think about you've got a high arch or a low arch so that comes from the calcaneus to your talus well basically extends from the calcaneus through to the talus the navicular the three cuneiform bones and then the proximal ends of your three metatarsals the three medial metatarsals to be precise. Then you have a long lateral longitudinal arch that extends from the calcaneus, which is your, or calcaneus, depends on how you want to pronounce it, to the cuboid, uh, across to the cuboid and then a, the proximal ends of the fourth and fifth metatarsals. But then we have a transverse arch at the front of the foot. So you can look at the foot from the from the medial side, the inside or the outside, the lateral side, or then we can look at from a transverse. So looking at the toes, looking backwards. Now, people got really flat feet. I want them to have some sort of arch support. And mm-hmm. there's um, athletes that I've worked with all the time who have got feet 
like hands, yep. flat as. They will be rocked. So what we see then is some changes in foot configuration during weight bearing. And, and this is kind of, for those that are interested, they'll know these terms. There's things like forefoot varus, forefoot valgus, and rear foot varus. What happens when you have a traditional forefoot varus? So forefoot varus has a slight inversion of the forefoot. So I'm talking about the front of the foot. When you load that foot up with a weight, like you would do when you deadlift, you'll drop into an eversion of the calcaneus. So you collapse in effectively. And that you know, that leads to a knock knee type presentation that affects Q angle and that affects all your loading parameters through the lower limb. So put your shoes on, get yourself some support because because you're not you're not recruiting any more muscle by being barefoot. Have we done that to death yet? I think I have. That was a very good myth bust. I don't know if it's a myth, but it's a misconception. You're not going to, well, it is a myth. You're not recruiting any more muscle, except your tib ant. If you want to build up your tib anterior, go for it. Nice. I jumped to number two now. Is that all right, right with you? Yeah, sure. Did Sorry. you breathe or something? 15 minutes in. <coughs> wow, that was a big answer. Mate, eating meat increases the risk of cancer. Yeah, so this is another one that's a little bit of a myth or a misnomer, perhaps. So there are, now, let's recognize, because there'll be some people who will be very passionate about this, perhaps. Let me be clear. There I, are, may, I may have put this one in myself. There are many, many, many papers that provide a causative relationship between a high meat consumption diet and yep. cancer risk, right? No argument, okay? The so you want, do you want to explain what that means? Well, there's a causation. So it's not a correlation. It's not a direct correlation. Yep. You, If you eat meat, does not directly correlate that you will get an increased cancer risk. It's not a guarantee, right? It's a causative relationship over time. Now, that's only the case in very specific circumstances because you must have, or the inconvenient truth here, that 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 causative relationship or that increased risk only occurs if you have one or more other chronic disease-related risk factors. And the big four are obesity, cigarette smoking, high alcohol consumption, and inactivity. Now, if you don't have any of those, if you're not obese, if you don't smoke, if you don't drink a lot of alcohol and you and you exercise, then you have no greater risk with an increased protein consumption diet than someone who's got a high protein. So can we define obesity in that? So we would go by BMI. So that would be those that are over, you know. So this is a, a good chat actually around what's overweight versus over obesity. So we go into... We look at BMI and those that are morbidly obese on a on a BMI scale. So really, and that's I'm I'm sort of stuttering here because BMI is not necessarily a great measure of body composition yep. for athletic populations with high muscle mass. So as a general comment, it would be I would say to you, people with a very high like if you're over forty percent body fat, you're at a high risk. Okay, yeah, forty is high. What is really interesting is that it's mediated by so cancer's an interesting thing, and I'm not an oncologist, but it's it actually helps to give you a really brief overview of how cancers work. And so it, they're, they're primarily insulin-like growth factor one or IGF-1 mediated. They, they need a growth factor. So the body cells produce what are called reactive oxygen species. So cells are getting damaged all day, every yep. day, right? A part of respiration, energy production is how it works. Now that damage is normally, the body's really efficient, right? It cleans up things very well via tumor suppressor genes. Tumor suppressor genes instigate what's called aptosis, which is self-destruction of damaged cells cells to stop them dividing and metastasizing fundamentally, yep. right? When you have high amounts of DNA damage, the genes become mutated. And if that is not, if there's anything that inhibits that tumor suppressor factor, that causes aptosis. So if the self doesn't, if the cell is in a growth environment, it can become what's called an oncogene. Genes that are involved in cell adhesion, if they become mutated, they're metastases. So there's different types of cancers depending on where the cells are. And it, it's quite complicated, but cancer really fundamentally is 
is DNA, unregulated DNA damage. And so, and inflammation. Inflammation is a really key player in this. But all of that needs a, a growth stimulant to override the natural cell destruction that leads to reproduction of damaged cells. Okay. And IGF-1 is the mediator for that. Now, where fat, um, where meat and comes into it is that meat's high in protein, obviously, right? Protein's high in amino acids, particularly leucine. So leucine is a regulator, as we know, of the mTOR pathway, if you remember, around protein synthesis and muscle mass yeah. and muscle development, mTOR pathway and IGF-1. So the, the link is high protein, high GF1 is a switch on signal growth activation for cells. So that's the link. People go, well, high meat, high protein, high leucine, high mTOR pathways, high IGF1, growth environment, and tells, it tells the cells to keep producing even though they should die. And that's how cancers develop. Yeah. Well, that's part of how, it, you know, I don't want to, <clears throat> that's an, a simplification of it, but that's basically how it works. IGF1 actually turns off the, what's called the autophagy pathways. It inhibits a thing called FOXO3 pathway, which is pretty complicated, but you know, I like to go there. And by switching off FOXO3 pathways, it basically opens the gate for progressive cell growth. So even these damaged cells that should self-destruct don't. And that's where we have problems. And that's why meat gets associated with that. Now, the plant-based people of the world who think that they're avoiding this risk of cancer, it's not meat as such, right? Leucine and aminos stimulate IGF-1. So if you're a plant-based person and you're supplementing your diet, which you should because you need them, and this is where I'm heading with this, you need growth hormone, you need IGF-1 and you need mTOR pathways to maintain muscle for normal life. You can't get around it. So if you're supplementing your diet with leucine, for example, and I, if you're a plant-based person, I reckon you should be, it's the same stimuli as if you have a steak. So you kind of, there's different reasons why people are plant-based, but this would not be one of them, in my okay. opinion. Yeah. So upset anyone eating meat increases risk of cancer? Only if you're obese, yep. if you're a smoker, mm-hmm. you're an alcoholic, and you don't exercise. Nice. So for most people, it doesn't matter. That was a big one. We've got two massive ones to start. Wow. Well, here's another one we get asked about a lot. Artificial sweeteners cause cancer, energy drinks are the devil. Yep. So again, as I as I position my monster next to my Red Bull, as I you know, <laughs> undertake this podcast. So here's the thing, right? What's that actually got in it? I'll tell you. I'll get there. It's about oh, 2,800 milligrams in of aspartame. Yeah. 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 So here's the thing, right? The, the, the short answer to your question is garbage. Okay. Wow. Right? Okay. Yep. You can go to any council, uh, cancer council. Go to the New South Wales, Queensland Cancer Council. Download what their recommendations are. There was a 2019, this year, there was a study, a systematic review by TOES, T-O-E-W-S, and we can provide that. Absolutely categorically slam dunk. Artificial sweeteners do not contribute to weight gain independently. Yeah, nice. Yep. Do not increase hunger and do not elevate your risk of cancer. All of the myth comes from, well, not all of it, but a lot of it comes from, and people talk about the rat study from 2005, right? So there was a study on rats and they gave, it was by a Sofridi, S-O-F-F-R-I-T-T-I, Sofridi in 2005. I'll put that down the bottom for yeah, anyone who wants to look at it. put the reference there. Sofridi's paper in 2005, right? So they fed rats a ton of aspartame, right? So a rat weighs about 400 grams. They're pretty big, lab rats, not mice. And they gave them about 20 grams, various dosages. But the ones that got- 20 over 400. 20 grams on a 400 gram gram rat, right? So that's the equivalent of me having five kilos or five million milligrams of aspartame a day. How would you feel if you had that? Well, in real terms, that would be me consuming. So this is a monster, 500 milligram monster has 2,800 milligrams of of aspartame. I would have to have 1,780 85 cans a day to replicate that study. Okay. It's just garbage. Myth. 
Myth. Myth. Anyway. Mate, another big one we get asked a lot about, dairy products increase estrogen. Garbage. Garbage. So here's the thing. Here's the reality. So here's the interesting thing, right? Yeah. I would put it to you, Gregory, that the same people that are telling you sweeteners give you cancer are the same people telling you that meat gives you cancer, are the same people telling you that you're adrenally fatigued, are the same people telling you that dairy products make you estrogen dominant which I'll talk about in a minute. Rubbish. Rubbish? Right? Yeah, Myth. Rubbish. Anyway, so there's hormones in milk, for sure, right? So, they're, they're, But it's tiny compared to what the body produces. Yep. You know, you'll, you'll produce, a human body will produce about 6,000 times more estrogen a day than what you would get from a 500 mil con- consuming of milk. Myth. Myth, yeah. End of. End of, like it. Move on. Can I consume coffee, caffeine, aminos during fasting? Yeah, I get this one asked a lot. Have you been asked this a lot? Yeah. Yeah, so because I'm an intermittent faster. Let's go, what are you really? Well, I have a bit of a, well, see, here's the thing, right? Come so with my time-restricted diurnal, <laughs> intermittent, modified keto with targeted fasting, right? We know this, right, about food. The gut is important, right? So, but the, the microbiota in gut changes throughout the day. So we know that if you have meal X right now in the morning and you have that same meal with the same ingredients, macronutrients later in the day, you'll get a different response. We know that we're more insulin sensitive in the morning and we're more fat adaptogenic in the morning, right? This is probably why, this is why I'm, I'm a diurnal modified uh, intermittent time-restricted feeder. So time-restricted feeding is a, people ask me this a lot as well, time-restricted eating is a type of intermittent fasting. Two reasons why you fast, right? I guess, to, well, there's two reasons probably why you should fast. One is a lot of people do it for weight loss because they're trying to become ketogenic. But the other is the longevity benefits around, you know how I mentioned apoptosis and autophagy and cell pre-programmed destruction? Yes. You get that with fasting after about, but you have to be into a into a fast for probably at least 24 hours. Okay. So you don't get that with sort of five minutes, but they're the they're benefits. Anyway, the answer to the question, because the question is, if I have a black coffee, well, the other thing is, what's a coffee? So I'm talking about black coffee, yep. not milk. If you have milk in your coffee, that will break your fast. Absolutely. Black coffee, the general consensus is that that's okay. Black coffee, but what coffee or caffeine will do is change your circadian clock. So we know that every organ has its own. We've talked about circadian rhythms we have. in different podcasts. So if you consume caffeine later in the day, it'll shift your clock by about 40 minutes which is kind of interesting, right? And so that'll change the metabolism in your gut and your liver throughout the day. Okay. So that'll that'll prolong how the gut tolerates different types of foods. So there's a really, for those that are interested in this stuff, I recommend read the work of Dr. Ruth Patterson. Ruth Patterson is a researcher with breast cancer in the US and has done a lot of work around intermittent fasting with cancer patients and unbelievable success rates, like 36% reduction in cancer reoccurrence. Like, wow. you know, really incredible stuff. Amina, Amino's wise, it's a little bit different because aminos, and we've talked about this a minute ago with leucine, aminos will will deactivate. Well, fasting is good because it deactivates that IGF-1 pathway. That's why it's really good for health. It also deactivates the mTOR path. But both of those are going to be switched back on by aminos, particularly leucine. So aminos will mess up your fasting. Mm -hmm. So what I would say to you is black coffee, no problems. Your branch chains and all that, definitely have them, but just they're going to break your fast. So don't have them and think that you're still going to be fasting. Electrolytes, sorry, you didn't mention, but I'll mention electrolytes because that seems to be a bit of a roving feast around where we're at with that. It seems to not like magnesium and sodium and those sorts of products doesn't seem to change your circadian rhythm okay so it probably doesn't impact on your fasting too much okay nice yeah nice. people ask me this is a side side bit but people ask me all the time how do you come out of a fast because you know if you've eliminated food from your diet for a period of time and then you throw it back in you can have some gut disturbances and so what i say to people is that you want to bring in some protein 
important. So you want some essential aminos. So yep. in whatever form you like, it could be beef, chicken, fish, could be whatever. Because that you want to switch your IGF-1 back on. Yep. And that's an important thing. Some carbs are important because carbohydrates increase IGF-1 bioavailability. So one, I'm going to switch it on with protein. Two, I'm going to absorb it, absorb it better with carbs. So I need to have both of those. So I just keep in mind gut sensitivity and don't, you know, don't go crazy. Don't go to the buffet yeah. after being fasting for, for two days. That would be my, you know, recommendation. Nice. You ready for this next one? Is, what is it? Estrogen dominance exists. Right. Yes or no? Yes and no. Okay, <laughs> wow. So estrogen dominance is another naturopath's term. Yep. Now how I feel about that. It's not a medical diagnosis. Okay. What we're talking about, estrogen dominance, my read on, it's the theory about metabolic state where the level of estrogen outweighs the level of progesterone in the body. That's what I'm talking about when I hear that. Well, that's yep. what I interpret it to be. Estrogen's a really important survival and health hormone for both genders and we've we talked about it actually when we did our testosterone we did yeah you know, it's converted from androstenedione which is an androgen by an enzyme an enzyme called aromatase and we talked about the whole axis by which the the hpg axis whereby i won't get into it but luteinizing hormone follicle stimulating hormone blah 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 goes to the ovaries and produces estrogen in one direction and progesterone in the other so estrogen dominance certainly people can have higher estrogen and lower progesterone absolutely yep. positively higher estrogen um levels are definitely associated with things like endometriosis, polycystic ovary uh, syndrome, PCOS, really, and a lot of ladies listening yeah, to this will experience all over that. that yeah. Yeah. So that definitely exists, definitely. Whereas the lower estrogen is more of a postmenopausal adaptation that we see in ladies and, and and often that can be associated with some pretty some pretty major health concerns particularly around things like alzheimer's parkinson's things like that so yeah. so yeah you can you can have a high level of estrogen whether it's dominant or not you you can that's semantics for me around the terminology but yep it can be high or it okay. can be low nice oh. is powerlifting bench press better than traditional for muscle yeah, recruitment so this is my um bugbear too i see a lot of people doing well apparently you're not the only ones with a bugbear because this is a question oh, right, yeah okay. maybe so, you've mentioned it in something we've done previously but maybe if you want to be a powerlifter you should lift like a powerlifter yep. if you want to be a bodybuilder and develop pectoralis major then you should do a traditional bench press it's as simple as that the, the, what happens when because i think there's a bit of misconception around the mechanics of those lifts it depends what you're trying to achieve if it's a if it's a powerlifting movement where you're just trying to move a lot of freight yep. then for sure you want to be the big back arch you want to be feet right up under your bum the whole works, right? Yep. But if you want to isolate pectoralis major, then you need to get your three-point stance, get your bum back on the bench, get your feet on the ground, and do a bench press properly. What happens when you go Hear into that? Hear that, Taj? Do a bench press properly. Yeah, Taj. Yeah. If you want to... Tells me you've been catching up with him in the gym a bit. Yeah. Yeah. dragging him along man so a lot of people think or well, there's a bit of misconception that you recruit more pec major yep. when you're in that powerlifting position you don't okay uh, and you can throw the emg and work on it you actually get a fair bit of subacromial bursa impingement my personal opinion is that physique athletes and everyone else in the world except powerlifters should bench press normally powerlifters should bench press like powerlifters and i would leave it at that nice mate here's a big one you burn more calories after a hit session yeah so that's based on what's called the excess post exercise oxygen consumption or epoch which yep. has become really popular trendy word trendy word a lot of people talking about it what i would say to you is that is absolutely a thing yes you yep. will burn calories for a prolonged period of time after a hit session now can i just ask something is an f45 session and a hit session based on the ANSI 
you've just given. I am not an expert on F45. No, no, I'm just saying the style of training, like 45 uh, it's minutes. It's relative, mate, because it's self-determined. I'm not having to go at F45. No, Please, no. no one think that I am. I'm just weird. A lot of people are doing F45 functional style training. It may be, yes. Is that what you call a hit? What do you call a hit session? No, I've been me. with you when you've done the science side of it, and yeah. it is nothing like a no, functional session. For me, session. a hit session is yeah. – so for me, high-intensity interval training is maximum effort, maximum 30-second effort, followed by a relatively short recovery and back-to-back efforts. You only need to do about 10 of them, like a Wingate test for people who yep. know what I'm talking about. Slamming ropes on the ground for a minute and a half or picking up a dead ball and throwing it on the ground, unless you're doing that at maximum intensity, that's, that for me personally, that's not a high-intensity interval session. Okay. That's something else. And then if you walk over to the next station and stand around and look at so yourself. So we might answer this question based on the two styles here. So if we're yep. doing a clinical-based hit session at max output, yep. so maximum a, 10, like you said, 30 seconds. Yeah. So if you're doing the maximum effort work, and by that I mean you're going to fall off the bike. Yeah. You're, fall you're looking for a bucket. Yeah. yeah you're yeah. looking for a bucket. Yep. Then Definitely. Where things become a little bit So why am I going to burn more calories after that? Because you go into what's called a, an oxygen deficit. Yep. And so after exercise, your body tries to return that to normal levels. You you owe Think of it that you owe the body oxygen because you've gone into an anaerobic metabolism. And it, it's been around forever. 1923 was the first study done by Hill, and it was on the oxygen debit hypothesis, and it's evolved ever since. So you have supramaximal efforts that have to be above VO2 max. You've got to be flying. Nice. So yep. I've gone to an F45 session yep. now, and I've burnt 450, 500 calories. Yeah, that's different. Yep. Well, so, but am I going to keep burning after training? Depends on the intensity of the session. Mm-hmm. I, ca- I can't give you an answer because it depends on the intensity. Maybe yes, maybe no. Most likely yes. Anything I should be looking on my watch to find out whether I'm burning calories after I finish. No. So there's nothing I can do apart from... Because your heart rate will come back to normal. Yeah, you can't perceive it as such. Where it fall, where, where there is the anomaly is there are some wildly exaggerated timeframes around how long you're going to burn those calories for, right? Some people are saying you're going to burn calories for 48 hours. Some not. Garbage. You've said that, okay. So most, the vast majority of research tells us that the really high intensity interval work will have an extension of EPOC and calorie burning for up to, four hours is about the average, but it might be out to seven. It depends a little bit, right? So anyone that says do this workout and you're going to burn calories for 24 hours or 48 hours is absolutely dreaming. So I want to ask you some dumb questions right now, okay? And resistance exercise is where you want to be. So this is where your F45 workouts or your orange theories and that might be very good because they're they're using. Oh, mate, I'm not saying they're good or bad. People think they leave an F45 session, they're burning fat for 36 hours. That's rubbish. It's rubbish. That's what we're trying to. So do the work while you're there, guys. 36 hours is rubbish. Four hours, probably, yeah. Okay, so we upset anybody? Oh no, mate, we're no. not hit upset. We're no, just no. telling, we're just debunking myths. Yeah, yeah. So somebody does max output, like sorry, the Red Bull skier challenge is on now. Like, how many meters can you get in thirty seconds? People need to do that ten times to actually. Okay, well that's yes. not happening in my house. No, one off effort is not going to get you where you need yep. to go. No, and you won't be able to do ten the first time you do it. No. So what I what I say to people is, if you want to get a really good calorie burning, and our next myth is is hit better than list for yep. fat loss. I actually think you want to do a, cu- a combo because I'm a big fan of the hit work, right? Don't get me wrong. I just don't think people do their hit at a high enough intensity. No. I think people tend to coast a little bit through it. it. But if you are, you know, back to the wall, looking for a bucket, having a real hard crack, and you blend that in with some 
maybe lower intensity recovery interval stuff. It's a really good combo. Yeah, nice. Because a lot of the research is still supporting the moderate intensity space. And we did that when we did our um, Absolutely. fat loss yep. um, one. So we just get asked a lot about the Z-Pox thing. Like people go, oh, I just did a session and I won't mention anyone this time so mm. you don't get caught up in that. No. I just did a session of this, you know, oh, I must be burning fat for hours and hours. Yeah, and probably for three or four. And that would be fair. Yeah, nice. But not 36. No. And there is. Mate, there 12 are, hours, 24. I just pulled a number out when yeah, I said that. There are um, many, many, many studies. Like there's a big meta-analysis that I'll, I'll dig out and maybe we'll put online. It just, you can look at, you know, the comparison of say 50 studies and the most you'll see is about seven hours. Yep. Where I think the 36 hour thing came from, there was a, a study done several years ago on some elite, I think they were male rowers in their 20s, like Olympian level athletes who absolutely had a D and they measured them over a period of time and they tracked, but they tracked their food. It was normalized for age, food intake, sleep, the whole works. Yep. And they had a really extended epoch. Okay. And it was out. That was out in the neighbourhood of twenty four hours, and I think people grabbed hold of that as they tend to, and thought, well, every, all all interval sessions are twenty four hours. That's not how it works. It's it's very heavily dependent on gender, body composition, nutrition intake, sleep, training history, those kind of variables. One size does not fit all. Okay, nice. Do you want to touch the hit is better than list for fat loss? Or you think well, we I think we just then? did, didn't yep. we? Yeah, I think I don't think my, I, I think that it, it's it's more efficient. You'll still lose fat if you do your list work or your your, your lower intensity steady state. Yep. That's what we're talking about, or somewhere in between. I think people, anything's better than nothing. But yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't. I, better, worse, more efficient. Yes. Okay. Would be the answer. Here's a big one: slow metabolism stops people losing fat. Yeah. So when people say that, I think they're talking about their BMR, their basal metabolic rate, right? So, and we've talked about, well, you know, what is metabolism, right? It's the whole chemical processes that occur in a, in in the body to maintain life, right? Yep. So it's associated with the conversion of things like food to energy for normal function. It is building blocks of protein and repair of tissues and all that sort of stuff and even the elimination of, of waste within the body so we have two types of metabolism there's anabolic and catabolic anabolic build up catabolic breakdown yep. simple as that it, it's it's a really cool process and, and this is what I, I like to talk to people about But so there's a process called glycolysis that occurs within the cytoplasm of cells and that's the conversion of glucose to pyruvate it is a multiple step pathway that involves a number of enzyme enzyme induced actions that convert glucose you know and you can run through them, glucose 6-phosphate, fructose 6-phosphate, glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate into 1,3-bioglycerate um, into 3-phosphoglycerate into phosphophenopyruvate into pyruvate, right? You just roll that off your tongue. Yeah, that was easy, yep. So what happens then is pyruvate goes into the citric acid cycle, which mm -hmm. is the Krebs cycle, right? Which is where ATP is also produced. We get ATP production through glycolysis at the cost of various ATP molecules, but we go into the Krebs cycle and that's where pyruvate is converted via to acetyl-CoA and then acetyl-CoA enters into the Krebs cycle. It's cleaved via citrate synthase into citrate and then it goes through the whole cycle in ultimately producing oxaloacetate that is then converted back through into acetyl-CoA. So that's metabolism, right? And that's a really important part of it. Where people I think are talking about here is they're talking about BMR, which is their basal metabolic rate, which is effectively how much energy you produce just keeping the lights on in a human body, if you were to sleep even for 24 hours straight, that sort of thing. So, and that's made up of a few different things like thermogenic or thermic effect of food, which is about maybe 10% of our BMR metabolic rate. The BMR is about 60%, 50 to 70%, give or take. We have the resting energy expenditure, which is about 15%. Now we have this thing called NEAT, which is the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It's So it forms the, the remainder effectively of your metabolism. So what was the original question? Does, does a slow metabolism stop, stop me weight. from losing fat? It's not really. No. no. So it's hypothalamic regulated. Can people have a slow BMR? Yes. 
But can you do something about it? Yes, yes, you can. And you can do that through a whole range of things. Now, BMR does decline about 1% or 2% after you turn 20. So it's pretty early, wow, right? So, early. so it will start to drop down. And we can measure it, right? We use a thing called a quark, which is a, a hood-based indirect calorimetry uh, that we can use to, to measure things like uh, respir- respiratory exchange ratios and things like that. But it's all hypothalamus regulated. The hypothalamus is, is key. We talk about it all the time. But I guess in essence, to give you a yes or no, I would say no. Okay, nice. Here's one for you. DEX is the only way to accurately measure body fat. Yeah, DEX is pretty popular, right? So dual energy x-ray absorbitrometry, absorbitrometry, can't even speak. Been talking too much. I need another (laughs) sip of my Red Bull. It's using dual x-rays, right? The problem with DEXA is that it does provide a radiation dose. So there is a limit to how many of these you can have every year. So Queensland Health will limit that or health regulators will limit that. And I know DEXAs are going in gyms or stuff around the place Mm. and causes an enormous amount of alarm to me. There are a number of ways we measure body composition. Hydrostatic weighing's been around for, or hydrodensitometry's been around for a really long time. Skin folds, girth measures, bioelectrical impedance or BIA's been around for quite some time. Cops a bit of heat, but it's actually a, a really good mode of doing it yep. because it's reproducible. Things like CT scans, MRIs, and all that sort of. Bod pod plus omography, which I can never pronounce. Can you say that? No. No. Anyway, it's more of a um, volume measurement, body okay. volume measurement. Anyway, so the answer is no. Okay. Dex is not the only way to do it. Dex is the gold standard for bone mineral density. Yes. But not necessarily body comp. Okay. And that's probably the, the consideration there. So are there other ways we can do it? Definitely. And if you want a non-invasive measure where you, that you could do every week that you want. See, there's different types of fat and we talked about this, right? There's subcutaneous fat, there's visceral fat, there's ectopic fat, there's a whole lot of range. So if you do your skin folds, you're just doing your subcutaneous fat. So that's not really giving you much in the way of total health profile. Okay. Bod pods are pretty rare. BIAs are everywhere. We have them in gyms and supplement shops and different providers. So I use BIA all the time. Yeah, nice. You know, no problem. Here's another classic one, mate. Fasted cardio is just not eating before training. We no. did cover that a little bit Yeah, earlier. we covered that last time, but that's incorrect. Basically because you need about 14, 10 to 14 hours for the liver to deplete glycogen. So it's more of a, a process of making sure that you haven't eaten for a period of time prior to undertaking exercise before you do your cardio. So you need to be depleted, right? Because you want to be, because the whole crux of it is the development of ketone bodies, right? Ketosis, yep. right? Which is your beta hydroxybutyrate and your acetoacetate, right? So your beta-hydroxybutyrate, for a really quick overview for those that aren't familiar, it's synthesized in the liver via the metabolism of fatty acids. It's formed by leucine. It's converted from a beta-hydroxy-B-methylbutyrate, which is your HMB. I'm a fan of the HMB and that's why, in muscle and liver, and it gets converted then into beta-hydroxybutyrate. I was going to ask you a question about HMB. We don't have any left, I'm no, sorry. I was going to say, yeah. I was going to ask. So it's a histone deacetylase inhibitor. What does that mean? It's an, it enhances antioxidant mechanisms as well. So it's pretty okay. cool for you. And it's called a HDAC inhibitor. Anyway, cut a long story short, the guy you want to read about that works in this space is a guy called Eric Verdin, V-E-R-D-I-N. And he's a, he's a leader in this space. Guys, at the bottom of the podcast, bodyscience.com.au forward slash podcast, all these links are going to go in. Yeah, we'll rock them in. So acetoacetate is the metabolic precursor for a beta-hydroxybutyrate. And it's a metabolite of fatty acids again. And it's the first ketone body that gets produced during fasting. Okay. So, and it is important because it mitigates 
muscle loss. So the question, do I lose muscle when I fast, is no, you don't. So you the actually, question should be is, do I need to eat more food to get a better train? Yeah. If you're not correctly yeah, it's fasting. It's anti-catabolic, yeah, actually. Exactly. It's actually, yep. it's productive. So anyway, I think the answer. I think you've uh, covered think that, yeah. That. yeah, yeah Mate, here's one. ER exercises should be done before shoulder exercises. So they're external rotation exercises. So this is the one I see people. They've taken the physio exercises. You know the people stand in the gym with the one kilo dumbbell and yeah. do the internal external rotation. Yep. So I don't, I, I don't see any point to doing that. Just to qualify, you have a master's in I physio. I have a master's degree in physiotherapy yeah. and I've, I've done a couple of rehabs in my life. You've got to think about the rotator cuff and most people don't even know what the muscles are of the rotator cuff and what they do, but it's supraspinatus, infraspinatus, teres minor and subscapularis, right? Yep. They are not prime movers. Their role when you cut to the chase is to centralize the head of the humerus in the glenoid fossa. It's to keep it in the middle, right? They, yes, they um, play a role in, so for example, supraspinatus does play a role in external rotation, also a little bit in horizontal abduction. Terry minor will play a role in external rotation but minor whereas subscapularis is an internal rotator but they are not your prime movers they're not they're delts so what are we doing before shoulder exercises then shoulder exercises there you go that yeah. was pretty simple nice if you want to if you want to bench you're going to warm up to bench bench okay if you want to warm up to do an overhead press do an overhead press well, while we're in the gym let's keep going does cardio before weights ruin my workout uh no so that's the concept of concurrent training been around forever bodybuilding probably got it right early on and they're, they're, well, yes, and yeah, they did, but not perhaps to the level they think they did. So they would do their weights first and then their cardio yep. after. And the rationale was that the weights depleted my glycogen, yep. so I would burn more fat in my cardio. It actually makes really good sense. The, when that falls over is when you've been sucking on a, some drink, like, and you're drunk two like a sports drink. Yeah, yeah, if you're drunk sports Something drink, sugar. You're, you're kidding yourself. So there's some good research anyway. 2018, there's a study by Eddins, basically found that you actually get a benefit. So there's actually a benefit to doing strength training after cardio for the lower limb more so than the upper limb. Okay, so why lower get, limb? Dunno. Okay. That's just the research. I think that's the first time you've ever said that. Yeah, dunno. So wow. why would it be the lower limb? Probably, it's a, probably a muscle blood flow provision. So okay. it's, it's warmed up and it's ready to go. Beautiful. Yeah. Here's another one and um, mm. one close to our heart. Why do I sweat when I take hydroxy shred? Yeah, that's a good question. So people, let's get it straight, right? The amount you sweat has nothing to do with how much fat uh, you burn, you right? Burn, yep, so sweat. it's got to do with evaporative heat loss. And it's got to do with your sweat gr uh, glands, right? Yep. So they're called ecrine glands, E-C-C-R-I-N-E glands. Now they're key to thermoregulation. What happens is you've got millions of them all over your body, right? Yep. 40 million of these suckers, probably more, all over your body. And so what happens- Someone actually counted that? Yeah, believe it wow. or not, they probably <laughs> like did. What happens when we have some of these products, we get an acetylcholine response. Acetylcholine yep. is a primary neurotransmitter that will be released from cholinergic nerves, binds to the receptor of the ecrine gland and switches it on and it produces sweat. Now that that's what happens when you have hydroxyburn. And so it's a, you know, I guess that's what happens. You, okay. you get an increased acetylcholine response that switches on the gland and you sweat. Nice. Pretty much. And so it ramps up your thermoregulation. Mm -hmm. So it ramps up your, your metabolism. Okay. Well. Oh, here's a big one we've all been asked. Can I lose fat and build muscle at the same time? Yes, you can. It's not really that simple, but yes, you can. So often people lose fat and they look like they've gained muscle, but they are two independent mechanisms. We've talked about muscle mass and how you get muscle mass development, yep. and we need certain things for that. You need mechanotransduction, you need metabolic adaptation, and you need a little bit of trauma. You also need a growth stimulus. So you need your mTOR pathway, your IGF-1 pathway that we've said, you know, has good and bad ramifications, right? You need protein synthesis. You need delivery of nutrients yep. to be able to do that. Can you do that when you're calorically restricted? You can. You can You can heal and you can recover quite nicely in a calorically restricted diet provided you've got your macro profiles correct. What do you got to do to lose fat? Well, you've got to be caloric. You've got to be in a caloric deficit 
right? And you've got to what well, you've got to you've got to do some exercise that puts you in that position, right? Yep. So can you can you do that? Yeah, you can. Sure. Nice. Yep. So while we're there, what's your insta handles? Because you might get a couple of DMs on that one. Oh, what to think that you can't? No, no. Just oh, at can you Dr. give me a, build me a program that can? Oh, at so the Doctor Mac. Get on board, kids. You don't have a website yet, do you? I ask you that every no. time we do something. Yeah. It's not that hard, you know. It's actually to get a website. No. <laughs> <laughs> Developing losing fat is a piece of cake, man. It's about discipline. That's what that's what, and commitment and being organised. The reason people fail in their diets is because they're not organised. They get hungry, and you, you want to. I said this in the last podcast. It's maintain being satisfied the rage is the key to losing weight, and don't get hungry that's because it. once you're hungry, everything goes out the window. Absolutely, and even things you would never even contemplate eating, you want to eat. Look good, yeah, and don't go shopping when you're hungry. Don't go to Coles when you're hungry. It no. ends badly mm. all the time. Smart um, retailers, yeah. Developing muscle is more complicated okay? because you've got to train certain ways and we've talked about that. Heading on the same topic, BCAAs are better used during training than after? Is that a true or false? I actually think they're – I don't know if they're better. I think it's a preference thing. I, I prefer to take – Because you drink them during training. I drink them yeah. during training, yeah. Why? Because I – Because I've copped a bit of a hiding recently. Yeah, from... they cop a – but you know what? That's cherry-picking research. And people bagging BCAAs and saying they're a waste of money are kidding themselves. You just get, get into the science properly and look at, you know, leucine, isoleucine, all that sort of thing in terms of what it does for mTOR pathways and muscle recovery and healing, and the conversation's over. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably an extension of earlier but hit training is functional training we've said uh, no to that so hit training and fun well, i don't you know i don't like the word functional training yeah i know but anyway i know it's trendy i like it i know you do so the answer to that is no hit training is hit training isn't particularly functional mm. no no in fact it's probably the complete opposite <laughs> it's, it's probably the opposite <laughs> of functional okay mm. I shouldn't do HIIT training every day because it's bad for me. Yeah, I heard this recently, actually, from someone in this office when we were doing the questions. Yeah. Okay. And and this and she'd been told by her trainer that she didn't do shouldn't do HIIT every day because it's bad for her. I would say to you, in what universe are you training? Because that the answer to that is no. I'd now, like to see someone who could do HIIT training every day. If you have a history of Let's say you've got you've had a bilateral meniscectomy. You've got no meniscus in your knees, right? Then I would say to you, sure, hmm. don't sprint and jump and yep. do plyo box jumps every day because that will cause wear and tear and you'll feel yep. crappy. But if you don't have any limitations, there's no reason why you can't you know train high intensity intervals every day. Of course you can. Sounds tough. Yeah, but but there's a difference between that's tough and it's bad for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Question is here: Is it bad? It's for me? definitely tough, but it's not going to hurt you. Here we go. Muscle turns to fat when you stop training. No, it doesn't. It's physiologically impossible. What happens? to people when they because to get high amounts of muscle and maintain high amounts of muscle you've got to consume a lot of calories mm. right what happens when people stop training is they forget to stop eating as much and so they just get fat and you know and what happens when you stop training you you'll lose muscle for sure you it's called sarcopenia muscle atrophy disuse atrophy type 2 muscle fibers are your first to go bye-bye right so i stopped training but i'm eating the same because i i'm bulking <laughs> so you're just going to get fat and skinny. So you're skinny fat. Skinny fat. Yeah. Nice. That's bad. But fat does not, not in any way possibly physiological in humans. Muscle cannot turn to fat. Muscle, no. It's, no. Okay, fasting causes muscle loss. No. No. We already nailed that as well. No. No. Fasting will accentuate or actually help with your muscle mass development. And an interesting, a lot of it's been done in rats, but there's a guy called Sachin Panda, real person, has done a lot of work in rats and they found that fasted mice and rats, not only, so two groups, right? Well, they were time-restricted rats. So they had one group of rats that were allowed to eat anything they want around the clock. And then they had another group of rats that 
that ate the same amount but within a time frame. 11 hours is yep. where we're at, right? Now, what they found was that the rats that ate the food within the 11 hours, don't quote me, but lost 30% more body fat and they thought they'd lose muscle but they gained muscle in comparison to the ones that could eat whenever they wanted. So it was actually hugely beneficial to fat loss and muscle mass, not only maintenance but development. In wow. Those. Now, I know we're not rats but like someone told me once, a rat study is only a rat study until it proves what you want, right? And then it's a bona fide study. So fasting will not be a problem. Nice. Mate, last one might wrap it up. This strength training will slow you down. Yeah, no, it won't. I mean, that's been around forever. Strength training, true strength training recruits higher order motor units, type 2 muscle fibers. Higher order motor units are associated with fast twitch power yep. adaptation. Now, if you train slow, the, always, the, the thing's always been train slow, be slow. I don't cop that for a minute. It's about muscle unit recruitment. If you're recruiting higher order motor units with maximum intensity efforts, then there is a conversion that comes across. In a, in a perfect scenario, you would complement your high intensity strength training with some speed and power work. Yep. And that would value add to your strength work. But strength training doesn't make you slow. And, yeah, nice. muscle, and it doesn't make your muscle bound either. Nice. Thank you. Well, Dr. Mack, it was good having you on. If you want to ask some questions for our next myth bust, bodyscience.com.au, you jump on and leave a message or just DM at bodyscience on Insta. If you send it to Mac direct, we aren't, we're out of control there. That's up to you. If he tells us happy days, if he doesn't, because he's a busy man. But you, you can just send them to Body Science. That's yeah, something. sure. You don't want them on yours. <laughs> hey, guys, thanks for coming on, Bob. Mac, thanks. For, definitely a big one for you. It's a good, good People one. People really enjoyed this last time we did it. Yeah, so. Cool. yeah, so we have a crack at a few things that are entrenched in probably folklore. But, you know, we've got to push the boundaries, ask some questions. It's all mm, good. Nice. Yeah. Perfect. See you next time. Cool. Rock on. Today's podcast was brought to you by our partners in Fit, Happy and Healthy, ASN, Nutrition Warehouse, DY Discount Vitamins, Fat Burners Only, Evelyn Fay, Mr. Supplement, or find a retailer online at bodyscience.com.au forward slash retailers.